0: Well, let me open everything up here. Yeah, this morning um, I'm just going to give another kind of report back of the conference that Nathaniel and I were able to go to last weekend, and you all sent us there. And so I'm I'm just overwhelmingly thankful, and I don't know if I can say thank you enough for giving us that opportunity. Um, because it was very, very, very good for my heart, and I'm excited to share with you a little bit about it. Um, so, just to, I w- I'll do like a little recap, and then I'll kind of translate, like, so what does this mean for River City Vineyard? Um, so we, we took a red eye to Philadelphia at midnight, and we got in at four in the morning, and then we went to sleep for a couple of hours, and then we woke up, and... Um, had lunch with Shane Claiborne. Do y'all know who he is? Can you raise your hand if you know who he is so I can see? He's a fella, he wrote, he, he's written a bunch of books, but the first book he wrote um, came out when we were in high school. <clears throat> Talk louder? Please. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> I've got a soft voice. How's that? I guess I could also hold it. I don't know. Huh? Okay, all right. We'll just, we'll go with it. Um, so anywho, Shane is part of an intentional community in a neighborhood in Philadelphia called Kensington. And they kind of, they likened it to the way that people talked about Nazareth and um, the New Testament, like, oh, nothing good can come from there. Uh, there's a lot of poverty, um, very heavily addicted by the opioid crisis. And they, this community has been living there for 20 years, just with the mission of being good neighbors, whatever that means. Um on any given day and so we and maybe a group of like 50 people maybe smaller than that at the conference had lunch with him and got to hear about what he's up to and I just wanted to share a few things because they're really cool Um, one of their most recent projects was they walked around the neighborhood with kids from the neighborhood and they picked up needles on the street um, that people had used and discarded and they put them in jars multiple jars and filled them with epoxy And so they froze, and then they delivered those jars to the desks of their representatives so that they would be reminded of the urgency of what was happening in their neighborhood. Um, Another thing they're involved with is they partner with this organization called Raw Tools in Pennsylvania, and they take, uh, even purchase guns that were used in violent crimes, and they beat them into garden tools, um, fulfilling the, the prophetic, you know, Um, sayings of the Old Testament, beat your spears into pruning hooks, all that stuff. And we just got to hear, like, who are the people that are beating the tools and they are families that have been affected by gun violence. They are people who have been involved in gun violence and just the redemption that is happening through that. And then one other thing that I actually want to pass around, Shane's been involved with um, folks who folks and families of folks who are affected by the death penalty. So he spends time with people on death row, like around the country. Um, And he's from Tennessee. And most recently, uh, the most recent governor elected to Tennessee is a man of faith. He has Bible studies with Michael W. Smith, but he brought back the electric chair. And so um, Shane spent time with the prisoners on death row, and they wrote their governor a letter, and they all signed it. And the, the letter says, Dear Governor Lee, We understand that you are a man of faith, and we would like you to come. We would like you, we would like to ask you to come and pray with us. And they all signed it. And there's one name that's crossed out, and that's because this man was executed. And so he turned this letter into postcards, and he gave them to all of us. And I haven't sent mine in because I wanted to show you guys. And so I want to pass this around just so you can see it. Um, And I don't know about you, but that sort of prophetic witness, like that just, that's like what makes me excited about being a Christian. Um, and then from there, the theme of the conference was Get Proximate, and so we had several different immersion sites we would go to, and we had to choose from a list of like 20 sites, and it was very hard to choose. But uh, the first thing we did was we went on a walk through another neighborhood that um, You can tell there's quite a bit of wealth disparity between the neighborhoods in Philadelphia, and so we went from a pretty well-off neighborhood to one where the buildings are crumbling and the streets literally lead to a prison. And we examined um, the way that city planning affects the lives of people and what the kingdom, like, means in those situations. We also went to a farm in Kensington, like, right in the middle of uh, this neighborhood. one of the ones that's affected by the opioid crisis, and they encourage people to get outside, and they grow food and have volunteers, and they give food away. And we also went to the Eastern State Penitentiary, which was our country's first penitentiary, which comes from the word penitence, with the idea that uh, prisons shouldn't just be um, a place for people to be punished, but maybe to be restored. And as we walk through um, this historic prison, our guide kept asking us questions like, so what do, you th- what do you think about this? Do you think that these methods were helpful? And by the end, they kind of led us through the evolution of the prison system in America to modern day mass incarceration and the issues that are all over this. Um, and so it was, it was very neat. We got proximate. We learned a lot. And I, I've just been reflecting that I haven't, been in a situation or a conference that had both charismatic worship and the depth of content that um, was spoken by various pastors and the folks they invited to speak, and so it was just, it was really good, and I am feeling very encouraged, and so I'm still putting together everything that it meant to me and how I see it being relevant for our community here, and so I'm going to try to put it into words, and I'm i just going to try to be as honest as possible with my thoughts and what it means for me, and I have a feeling some of you might relate to it. And so um, one of the things that I keep thinking was that this conference was refreshing for me because while we know that suffering is happening, usually my day-to-day life here in New Braunfels is pretty easy, and I observe suffering at a distance. Would you guys relate to that? Like of course we all experience pain and suffering, but in terms of kind of life and death situations, we don't really encounter them too often on our streets. And when I encounter pain and suffering, I generally have a means to go get help. So I can afford to go to the doctor, go to a therapist. I have you guys, I have my friends to surround me, a community. And I'm tempted to forget that the words we read in the Gospels are meant to have a flesh and blood context to them. Words like salvation, forgiveness of sins. I can sometimes read as metaphorical and have everything to do with myself and my individual spirituality. And I tend to forget that there are vulnerable people outside of my world who need a Gospel that is embodied, that is made of flesh and blood. The word made flesh, or like the message says of John 1, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Experiences like this make me confront my own privilege and how it influences the way I read the stories of Jesus. Privilege doesn't mean that I haven't experienced pain or sorrows or suffering. I have. But it means that I don't also have to deal with issues that arise because of the color of my skin or because of my socioeconomic status. And what I'm remembering is that actually my daily comfort can be a disadvantage to my Christianity. And it can kind of cloud my eyes from understanding what Jesus, what, what Jesus is doing, what he's saying. And there's something that I'm not really sure how to describe. Um, I see Jesus here. We know Jesus. We hear from him. We know his voice. But there's something about when I enter into places of pain and suffering, like more than my own, I have this moment where I realize like, oh, this is where Jesus is. This is where he is. And it's almost like we're in a house and we're smelling cookies. And then we go into the kitchen and we see, oh, this is where it's coming from. Like this is where that sweet scent that we're smelling is. And with all this, I want to be careful to not use the poor for my benefit. Like I go and spend time with people who are suffering to feel better about myself. I don't wanna do that, but I really do think that the kingdom of Jesus that we all long for is born first and foremost among the poor. And if we want to learn about Jesus and his kingdom, we need to listen to these folks and we need to spend time with them because the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but it takes over the garden and the birds of the air come to rest in its branches. And then this is a quote by a man named James Cone, and he's thought of as the father of black liberation theology. He passed away, I think, last year or the year before. And so there are a lot of articles that came out just remembering his life. And he said, Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. Wherever there is evil, wherever there are oppressed people, that's where we find Jesus. He's not locked into some distant past. He's present in the lives of those who suffer. And I want us to be a community that is close to Jesus, that is encountering him and seeing him and hearing from him and falling more in love with him. I want us to be reminded that the good news about Jesus isn't metaphorical or spiritual or only for us. It, we're included in that and everything, like our internal realities and our worlds, like of course that matters to God, but it's for our world. And the way we participate in it, the way we follow Jesus, is by decentering ourselves. That was a word that came up a lot. And that I realized, oh, I have, a, I have a hard time with this. Because uh, I'm an Enneagram 4, those of you who are aware of the Enneagram. And the thing with 4s tends to be that we process the world through our own emotions. So I feel like this might be an even like, more difficult thing for me to do. Because I'm always aware of how I'm feeling and how I'm relating to the world around me. But we are called to decenter ourselves and stand alongside those who are suffering under the weight of empire, like Nathaniel talked about last week, and labor with them in the Holy Spirit to see the kingdom of God birthed in their circumstances and in the world. And so Advent is coming up, and we're going to sing songs about how Jesus came to bring peace on Earth. But what does it take to bring peace on Earth? What does that look like, practically? Martin Luther King said that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. And that, that does like, is that an easy thing to see happen? I don't think it is. I think that justice that leads to peace is disruptive. And so from that, I want us to read Mark 5, and we have it up on here. and I'll just go ahead and read it. You can follow along. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and this was a Roman military outpost. This had everything to do with empire and people suffering under the weight of an oppressive empire. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure, impure spirits came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained By hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with the stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And again, that's a military term. He begged Jesus again and again to not send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a hillside, uh, nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Then those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, he was sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I've always wondered about this story because my honest reaction was like, look, this kind of sucks for the people who own those pigs. (laughs) Like, they just, their livelihood just got destroyed. But maybe another way of looking at it is that Jesus is showing us that liberation is disruptive. It disrupts the way things are. And we see that in response to this man's liberation, the people of the town are afraid and ask Jesus to leave. Do we want Jesus and what he's doing with the disruptive unfolding of his kingdom in the world? Or do we want to preserve our own comfort? And they chose the latter. And we always have that choice. And this reminds me of the debate over the emancipation of slaves in the U.S., you can go back. There is an economic cost to freeing slaves, right? And that was the whole debate. And, and it makes sense because American wealth and even our current economic system was and still is built on the backs of slaves or low-wage laborers. And in, in the District of Columbia, Lincoln signed a bill that compensated slave owners $300 for every slave they released because there was an economic cost the slaves who were freed and had to rebuild their entire lives in a society that didn't acknowledge them as human beings, weren't given anything. Or today, if we decided, I thought about, I was thinking this during Halloween, if I buy candy that only uses fair trade chocolate, because we know that most of the chocolate in the world comes from West Africa, where it's harvested by children, I'm going to have to spend a lot more money. That's disruptive or if we spent time with homeless families here in New Braunfels, because there are some. Have you guys heard of Family Promise? I just learned of them this week, and we're, I'm, I'm gonna meet with them on Tuesday to see if there are ways that we can be involved in supporting their work. Um, yeah, there are homeless families in New Braunfels, and they, if we listen to their journeys and their, the hardships they've encountered, Maybe we'll see that the fact of the ratio of wages and housing costs in New Braunfels really matter for these families who run into hard times financially. And if you'll allow me to get a little more radical, I think that the reason our ideas of the kingdom of God and salvation, etc., tend to stay purely in a spiritual realm, my soul goes to heaven, we're going to save other souls so they can go to heaven, the suffering in this world is temporary and we're going to escape it eventually, I think it tends to stay in that realm because salvation, in any other sense, is inherently disruptive to the way things are, to the status quo, to those who benefit from the status quo, and to the powers in our world that maintain it. Is that radical for y'all to hear? How's that sound? Ephesians 6 talks about how our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers, and principalities in the heavenly realms. These powers manifest in actual systems of oppression in the world and they keep actual human beings subjugated and in bondage to them. Can you think right now of an area in the world where people are in bondage or suffering under the weight of systems that they have very little influence over? Like Scott mentioned, the folks stuck at our border, they fled violence and death and now they're stuck in these camps and their kids are getting sick. And I heard a statistic this weekend that reported that 98% of those people will never be granted asylum and they can't go home. So that feels like an impossible situation. But there's good news because there's always good news with Jesus. Colossians 3 talks about how Jesus triumphed over the powers, the powers on the cross and made a public spectacle of them. That means that his spirit has the ability to break these chains of oppression here and now. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know, and I am increasingly convinced that following Jesus is a way, it's a way we live, and part of being a follower of Jesus is resisting powers of oppression, resisting the iron will of empire with the Holy Spirit, and like Jesus said in Luke 4, bringing good news to the poor, to the actual poor. What is good news to a poor person? Is it, guess what? Jesus forgives you for every bad thing you've ever done. You can go to heaven when you die. It's probably more like you're never going to have to worry about food again. Good news to the poor. Freedom for prisoners, sight to the blind, and freedom for those who are oppressed. This isn't a metaphorical thing unless we let it be. And so I just want to end by asking... Where do you see the spirit? We can go to the questions. Moving to bring liberation and bring freedom and release. Where do you see people who are desperate for that? And what does it look like for us as a community and us as individuals to decenter ourselves and labor alongside these vulnerable communities to see the kingdom come through the power of the spirit? Because it's a partnership. A whole lot of folks are interested in social justice, and that's a good thing. But we know that like, new creation isn't going to come without the Spirit. What comforts are we holding on to that it might actually be in resistance to kingdom liberation? And what does it look like to get to be closer to Jesus, who lives with the poor, who lives on the margins? And I want to read to you guys um, Psalm 82. This was a part of the conference that just blew my mind. We were having worship time in this like basement church in the Kensington neighborhood. And um, one of the speakers got up and he led us through Psalm 82. And it... The beginning of it says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. And the context of this was just like at the beginning of the book of Job, there's this idea of the council of the gods or the powers that, or maybe you could say angels and demons that God has created. And so when this says gods, think of powers. How, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? He's speaking to the powers. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing, they understand nothing. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, God said, You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. So power isn't inherently bad. But you will die like mere mortals, and you will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And as we read this, the speaker had us call out the powers in our world. Who are the powers that are holding people in bondage? Who are the powers who have the ability, even if they're not holding people in bondage, to set people free? And you can imagine in your mind, who who are the people that have power in our world? Maybe not even the people, but what are the structures of power in our world? And I, this week, as I just drive around the neighborhood, or just any time that I was driving, if I would see something and I would identify, like, man, that looks like bondage, I would, I would say out loud, like, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And I actually, I wrote a couple of letters <laughs> to people, and I said, you know what? Well, a variation of this. Um... But man, that's powerful, isn't it? And I also, I wanted to acknowledge that um, talking about spending time with people who are in vulnerable situations, practically that might look like volunteering. And I want to acknowledge that you guys are phenomenally like volunteering community. Like we function because everyone volunteers for just about everything, and I know I have been in situations, and I have even like, communicated in the past, not here hopefully, um, that if you don't volunteer more, you're not as good as, or you don't belong to. And I just want to say, that's not a prerequisite for belonging. We're a community, and everyone has lives. But I wonder if we could just sit with the Holy Spirit and ask these questions. And I think it's pretty neat that today's a communion day, because as Jesus ate this meal with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And so, what if the remembrance isn't just eating it, but what if it's the way that we live and the way that we pour ourselves out for the healing of others? And so, maybe I'll just pray and then hand it over to Scott. Holy Spirit. We're so thankful for what you're doing in the world. We're so thankful that you're the one who's leading and teaching us. And I'm thankful for glimpses of your kingdom. We want to be a part of it, Lord. We want to be a part of what you're doing because we love you. And we want everyone to know just how good you are. And so I just pray that you would you'd work in our spirits. Would you show us what show us what it means to shake off allegiance to things that don't look like your kingdom and to continue to walk into what it means to be sons and daughters of God? And we just we trust you with everything that's hard, with everything that seems impossible with the anger and the bitterness that comes up. That's something I've been searching in my own heart. We trust you. We are not the saviors of the world. You are. And we're thankful that we can, we can be witnesses to the salvation you bring and the liberation you bring. Amen. Amen.